Hello, and welcome to our podcast. My name is Isla Marotra. And I'm Calder Beasley. And today, our topic of discussion will concern epics. We will be deciding whether or not humans should be in the business of writing epics. This question is extremely broad, and I think it encompasses many factors of writing, ethics, and representation within many different time periods. So to provide adequate information and fully answer a question so complicated, we're going to split up the topic into sections with a smaller scope. So first, we'll dive into the contents of an epic. Yeah, so what is an epic? Structurally speaking, an epic is a lengthy, novel-sized work written in verse. Usually the language is complicated, which also makes sense, taking into account that some of the most famous epics were written in ancient Greece and Rome. Content-wise, the story follows the remarkable journey taking place in an expansive setting. Supernatural forces play a large role in the world of epics. Usually gods, magic, or divine intervention heavily influence the trek, which is almost always bent on fate. The role of fate is interesting in an epic. Even though the story is so large, the author uses the restrictions of fate to bind the story and create a feasible plot for the novel. Aiding in the author's telling is usually an omniscient narrator who is setting the scene in an almost legendary sense. The omniscient narrator is seemingly divine, which is an idea that becomes even more intriguing when you take into account the fact that the narrator is indeed speaking about the thoughts, feelings, and actions of the gods themselves. Finally, we come to the main component of an epic, the hero. Aptly named, the main character of an epic shows heroic qualities in their actions and deeds. Usually winning a war or triumphing against enemies, the hero is a stoic leader and skillful soldier. Examples include like Homer's Odysseus and Achilles and Virgil's Aeneas. These heroes traditionally have divine ancestry or some sort of connection to the gods. It is also important to note that these heroes are traditionally male. Okay. So we understand that the protagonist of an epic is supposed to be a moral and physical champion. But our next question is what is heroism within the parameters of an epic? Heroism as written into an epic truly boils down to greatness. So in order to get to the root of a hero, we must first reach a definition of greatness. To fully answer this, let's take a look at some other works. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche asserts the measure of greatness is the strength of one's will, and the true test of will is found in the disparity between accepted societal beliefs and the ingenuity of one's individual beliefs. This trial plays out when man faces God in an epic. The Greco-Roman gods represent the cumulative beliefs of a society, like explanations to the unexplained. When our hero is faced with some sort of challenge, whether it be physical or ideological, their strength and integrity become clear. Right, and when faced with a daunting journey with perilous tasks, the hero of an epic must embrace the divinity of the epic setting and the characters, but still remain attuned to their moral compass and individual will. As Nietzsche states in Beyond Good and Evil, section 212, greatness entails being capable of being different and standing alone. Nietzsche does not set specific traits or qualities that constitute a great person. He explains their position solely in opposition to the expected. He really paints the idea of a hero with a broad brushstroke, and then the epic itself is responsible for specifically defining the makeup of an ideal individual bound by the restrictions of society. For instance, in the Aeneid, which is a classic epic written by Virgil in ancient Rome, the Stoic trait emphasized is piety. As his home of Troy falls apart around him, 
Aeneas is visited by his mother, the goddess of beauty, Venus. In the midst of all this chaos, she tasks him with a perilous journey to found Rome. In keeping with these ideas of piety, Aeneas commits himself to fulfill his duty to the gods and leads the remaining Trojan soldiers to the Promised Land. Even in the face of hardship, Aeneas remains a strong leader, which we can see when he and his men shipwreck on an island. Quote, Fate holds out a homeland, calm, at peace. The gods decree the kingdom of Troy will rise again, bear up, save your strength for better times to come. Brave words. Sick with mounting cares, he assumes a look of hope and keeps his anguish buried in his heart. Even though he has just lost his father, his city, and many of his crewmates, Aeneas is still bearing the responsibility of projecting hope for his men, because he remains ever faithful to the gods in his mission. His entire situation is telling him to give up and shut down, but he recognizes his position as a leader and perseveres. As Wendell Clausen evaluates in his interpretation of the Aeneid, Aeneas is not actively excited to follow the fate laid out before him by the higher powers of the world. This dissonance between the unheroic attitude of the main character and his unquestionably heroic deeds exemplifies the power behind the author of an epic. I think you're totally right with that point. Virgil has the ability to lay out any traits and actions and spin them in a heroic manner. The fact that his hero is so unmotivated by the prospect of glory, which is so often associated with heroism, is very telling of Virgil's power to define the narrative of a hero. Exactly. Virgil's Aeneid provides one story of ideal heroism, but this definition is not the only one. To understand a more nuanced idea of what heroism is, we look to Gwendolyn Brooks's The Aeneid. The Aeneid is a feminist epic with an early 20th century black woman as a hero. Instead of showing physical strength and leadership as seen in previous classic epics, it shows Annie's emotional strength to overcome her oppressors. Although her war is internal, Annie still manages to reach Nietzsche's standard of greatness by leaving her cheating husband to live independently. Her actions are not easy or accepted by the world around her, but as a woman living heroically, she takes her fate into her own hands and creates her own legacy. Due to her gender and race, Annie Allen's journey is widely debated as meeting the criteria for an epic or a mock epic because of the content because the contents of her story do not fit the profile of a classic epic. But it's possible, or really likely, that the profile of a classic epic is too restrictive. Mm -hmm. Carol Pearson and Catherine Pope understand this idea well and posit that our understanding of heroism is defined within a white male perspective due to the fact that men created the genre and dominated literature thereafter. So all epics revolve around the upper-class men, providing a narrow perspective into the world of human morality. Right, and women, Black and Indigenous people of color, and citizens of a perceived lower status simply do not have a place within the genre, besides functioning as a tool for the main character, an affluent white man, to further his agenda. Exactly. In the Iliad and the Odyssey, Helen of Troy is an object of beauty, traded by the gods, and then stolen by men. In the Aeneid, Turnus and Aeneas incite a bloody war over the hand of Lavinia. Their motivation is not driven by the, their love for the woman, but by the land that they will possess if they marry her, as well as the desire for power that comes with the domination of women. Virgil seems to turn a blind eye to women when creating Aeneas as a heroic character. In the beginning of the book, Aeneas loses his wife and leaves her to die in Troy, all while saving his father. Later, Aeneas makes the pious, quote, pious decision to leave his second wife, Dido, resulting in her suicide. He only feels remorse for this action when he physically witnesses her in the underworld. 
The only female character in the Aeneid who is portrayed as strong and independent, Camilla, is ultimately killed in the battle, essentially because of her pride. Yeah, in essence, the classical epic exists within an overtly patriarchal world. And although our society is similarly patriarchal, there is at least a greater recognition of the value of women, black and indigenous people of color, and citizens of a perceived lower status. Since epics are inherently in denial of these realities, they are outdated, and their definition of heroism is narrow. In general, it is difficult to come to the conclusion of heroism or greatness, but epics are intended to be a medium by which to define such terms. And because epics work to define what a hero is, epics also define what it means to be moral. A broad definition of morality can be interpreted as the basis for decision-making, the understanding of good and bad. Even with this perceived binary system, morality is an extremely difficult idea to pin down, and even harder to encapsulate in writing. Ethics, morals, and viewpoints change to match the progression of society throughout time periods. The beautiful fluidity of ideals con contradicts the stagnant nature of a perfect character. A man carved in stone can never be a hero, because a key aspect of heroes is their ability to grow. One main issue with epics is their narrow scope. Greatness, as a pursuit of all humans, cannot simply be defined by one journey. A conglomeration of stories from many perspectives and times is a far more effective way of creating an accessible definition of greatness, and classical epics simply don't reach that goal. In order to understand the implications of a broken, one-story-fits-all technique, we need to understand the purpose of an epic. Why would anyone write a 500-page poem in verse, especially one that highlights the experience of a small subset of people? It's not supposed to be relatable. The status of a hero in an epic is written to be unattainable. Starting with the lineage of our heroes Aeneas and Achilles, they are demigods. And since they are chosen by their divine blood, off the bat, no mortal can accomplish the feats that this, these heroes set out to complete. Exactly. On top of their parental advantage, they are both wealthy white men with military prowess, high-ranking positions, and extensive connections. Even in their original times, very few people would be able to see themselves in the shoes of Aeneas or Achilles. In today's time, even fewer people would connect to the pages on a surface level. That is not the intent. So if the purpose of this writing is to ostracize its readers, it succeeds. However, it is a renowned piece of literature, so its audience must have found some connections or interest within the text. So, why were these poems written, and how did they become so popular? In short, propaganda. Aeneas is not a reflection of its reader, but of who its reader should be. Augustus, nephew of Caesar, commissioned Virgil to write an epic on par with Homer's Greek classics to glorify the empire of Rome and to outline the perfect Roman citizen. If we completely ignore the selfish region, reason of an epic being written to boost the ego of an emperor, the political motivation is almost jarring. In order to legitimize Rome as a powerful nation, there needed to be some kind of destiny, some sort of divine will at play, and Virgil had to create it. This will of the ruler in the Roman Empire is mirrored in the relationship between the gods and mortals in the world of the Aeneid. As Virgil is tasked with the assignment of writing an epic building Rome from fate and heroes, Aeneas is requested to sail a dangerous voyage to fight a war to build Rome. Neither man has a say in his fate, and both are simply obeying the orders from their so superiors. 
Is this reason enough to write an epic? Well, not really. With several books solely consisting of name drops, Virgil was less focused on creating a literary masterpiece and rather playing political bingo with the Romans in power. A driving factor of the writing process was ensuring good political relations. Finally, Virgil attempted to create the ideal Roman through his hero Aeneas. Providing for his soldiers before himself, Aeneas is a benevolent, caring leader. As he carried his father on his back to escape the burning of Troy, Roman readers were reminded of the selflessness and filial piety required of them by their emperor. Throughout the intense scenes of bloody war, it was communicated that Romans should place the glory of military victory over all other human emotions and desires because of their loyalty to their country. Also, the bond between two soldiers is not overshadowed by any other relationship, even marriage. These ideals seem great in the novel, but viewed in a perspective on a normal scale, there are other important relationships in a normal Roman life. Bloodlust does not equate to glory in our human world. There is a dissonance between the hero of an epic and the regular persons in Rome. The fact that Aeneas persevered through every challenge targeted at him either shows his unwavering devotion to his duty as a Roman or his unwavering devotion to the gods commanding him to continue his journey. Either way, Virgil makes it clear that Romans are expected to work hard and complete their duties without question. Preaching the ideas of piety conveys the message that Augustus wants his citizens to just shut up and do as they are told. This attitude does not seem very heroic in practice, particularly because, as we've stated with Nietzsche, heroism means following one's individual will. Instead of creating heroes out of ordinary Romans, Virgil works to silence them and quell divergent tendencies. And Virgil built his hero, and Rome, around these core virtues. He created a standard of civil obedience Augustus thought necessary for the advancement of Rome. Nietzsche's message is to break the status quo in order to become a hero. However, Augustus and Virgil are actively telling people to stick to the status quo, thus decreasing Rome's chance of heroic behavior. The author of an epic places himself in an interesting position to declare that they are wise enough, worldly enough, and experienced enough to determine the set of morals that constitute a heroic figure. As a fellow human myself, I can state that no one is or will ever be qualified to write the rulebook on living a great life. There's no extent of one's experiences that justify the apt portrayal of an ideal human through the format of a one-size-fits-all story that is inherent in an epic. Innate traits of gender, race, background, and status define privilege, which hinders the individual from connecting with all walks of life. It is an even further stretch for an author to then assert that people should read their writing, idolize their character, and then change their life to fit more closely with that construct. Now let's take a look at another end of the epic spectrum, which we alluded to earlier. This is the widely debated mock epic, the Aeneid. As an important note, she did not write this poem for a Roman emperor or anyone in a position of political power for that matter. Yes, there are many aspects of her work that lead me to believe she was not attempting to change people's behavior in the traditional sense as we've seen with Virgil. Instead of creating a basic hero, Brooks attempts to stretch the confines of the narrow genre by introducing a, di a diverse, flawed character. Gwendolyn Brooks' acknowledgement of the outdated nature of the epic genre is based on solid evidence. Virgil wrote the Aeneid using Homer's works as direct examples to copy. The characters, plot devices, and overall themes of the poem 
will remain the same if each work is fundamentally rooted in previous epics. This dilemma is where Brooke sets her poem aside. Her main character, Annie Allen, is a young black woman facing the true reality of tumultuous life. With common experiences like being cheated on, as opposed to an epic quest with cyclopses, her story becomes more relatable to the reader. The audience can also more broadly connect with Annie because of the ambiguity of her settings and actions. Brooks truly knocked down the door for women and people of color to be able to see a piece of themselves and their struggles in literature. The overall message is also worth mentioning. Annie does not fight in a war, spill the blood of her enemies, and become queen of a new nation. She grows in, an, in another sense. She gains understanding of the harsh realities of the world and becomes independent as she leaves her unfaithful lover. With the themes of racial and gender-based struggles, many people can read the Anniad and see their own lives as trials and themselves as heroic. At least, this would be the takeaway. But not many people are likely to read this piece of literature. Brooks has made an interesting choice writing her poem in complex language, including words like bijouterie and bacchanal. If she wanted her novel to reach the widest audience possible, in order to help bridge people's connections with epics, why make reading the poem and understanding the meaning so difficult? So I believe Brooks's intended audience was a bit different. She wrote for the scholars, the professors, the members of the high class literature sphere familiar with the classic epics. Her work was intended to make them question what constitutes an epic, and she very well succeeded. The Anniad strikes up debate as it is deemed to not fit into a box of an epic or of a mock epic. Yet the glaring point that she is making is that the neat box of an epic poem is too small and too tidy. It only fits white men of high status driven by the gods. And the problems with this structure and the acceptance of this structure reach further than simply the characters on the page. As we have discussed previously, epics have great impacts on their readers. So when thrusting a great poem out into the world, the stereotypes and representation in the novel truly matters. Right, and while I wholeheartedly agree with her goal of undermining the inherent racism, sexism, and classism of the elitist sphere of literature, Brooks's motivation has more to do with tearing down a stereotype than genuinely creating an epic hero. And as a black woman living in the 1930s, Brooks would have faced a great deal of racism and sexism, particularly within academia, an innately elitist and classist sphere. Again, Nietzsche harked on the point that heroism is defined by exceeding societal expectations. By creating a poem of such a caliber that it can be compared to classical works of literature, Brooks is surpassing the expectations of society, mirroring the character which she creates. Mocking the structure of an epic to point out the flaws of such antiquated literature in hopes of diversifying the scene of high esteem literature is a noble pursuit, but she's not actively attempting to create a hero that inspires readers to strive for greatness. As we have seen in our multiple examples, the goal of an epic seems righteous and beneficial in theory, but in practice, authors do not have the same motivation behind writing their poems. Twisted inspiration leads to results deviating from the classic goal. Like its plots, epics are far too idealistic in their construction and end up mirroring the same realities its author faces. Okay, now on to our last question. How do individual interpretations of an epic impact the efficacy of the work? So, as we've discussed, motivation plays a large role in the effectiveness of an epic. But an integral aspect of the work is the interpretation after it's been sent out into the world. 
As much as the poet would like to control how their epic is perceived and accepted, the overall opinion is completely based on the reader's thoughts and experiences. The individual interpretations of an epic are rooted in many aspects of a person. Firstly, their exposure to the genre and other similar works. Epics are not a light beach read. The complex verse and diction not only elevate the topic and contents of the novel, but also increases the schema, concentration, and time necessary to understand the plot and message. Yeah, there were many times when reading both the Aeneid and the Aeneid when I was lost or hung up on the esoteric vocabulary or references. The desire to keep the audience of an epic to a minimal group of people seems to work against any intent of a normal author or poet. Also, this ostracized group of people is mostly racial minorities, at least in America. Because of our nation's systemic racism, Black Indigenous people of color tend to have lower access to good education as compared to most white students. In fact, an NCES survey shows that Black and Hispanic uh, students were 5-15% to 15 less likely to have proficient literacy rates. So the epic genre has specifically forgotten these people. Epics have sustained generally sexist views towards women, completely excluded people of color, and have little representation in other fields of diversity such as ability and sexuality or gender orientations. People want to see themselves when they read. As a woman of color, like Annie Allen, I know what it is like to live in a world that actively works against you, and I also know what it is like to never read about a character that is similar to me. It doesn't stop a reader from enjoying the novel, but inclusivity is an important hook in literature to create a favorable view of a work. Society has progressed past the acceptance of a male Eurocentric standard of judging people in literature. So why should epics remain in the past? As we've stated at the beginning of our conversation, epics are super particular about the structure and traits that constitute the work. I would even go as far as to say the outdated nature of the poem is part of what makes an epic an epic. When Gwendolyn Brooks attempted to push the envelope of inclusion, scholars touted her, her poem as a mock epic. The scholars condemning, condemning the work based on its progressive changes to the boring standard truly shows the unwillingness of the epic community to change its views of a hero. The gatekeeping within academia speaks volumes about the authors and patrons of epics. It is simply pretentious creating a work that you know most people will not enjoy, solely to attain the status of writing a classic piece of literature. If the goal of an epic is to write a hero great enough to be idolized by all, then all shall have access to understanding and appreciating the example of greatness. The idea of perfection should not be cloistered away from the general public for the enjoyment of a few people. So, should humans be in the business of writing epics? Let's gather our arguments. Epics have a small scope, thus rendering its hero unrelatable. Our world is so complex and diverse that epics don't make sense because creating a perfect person, when there's so many different types of people, is narrow-minded. Also, it is unreasonable to expect the readers of an epic to live up to the standard of the hero created, because no individual can be perfect. Epics don't capture the reality of the human condition, which is, by nature, imperfection. And because humans are all innately flawed, no person has the authority or ability to create a perfect character. Also, the motives behind writing an epic never align with the goal of creating a great figure for the readers to aspire to emulate. The politics associated with epics dilute the literary meaning of the work. And epics are not accessible to a broad or diverse audience. The convoluted vocabulary and archaic references make epics so esoteric that they deter many readers from experiencing the literary insights. 
So then, with all these points in mind, it is reasonable to conclude that humans do not have a place in creating epics and dictating the standards of human perfection. The ideals of what a person should achieve should not be limited to the thoughts of one single figure creating a literary work. Rather, human greatness should be left undefined, so as to allow for varying perspectives and experiences. I'm Isla Marotra. And I'm Calder Beasley. And thank you for joining us on our podcast today. We hope you enjoy listening to our thoughts about epics.